In this season, we've explored different avenues for accountability. But what about legal measures that may be seen as preventing that? Are amnesties ever acceptable? How do they differ from pardons? Are they essential to a transitional process? What about victims and their rights to redress and to truth? And how has Saif Gaddafi impacted on the status of amnesties and international law? To discuss all of this, I'm joined by Rupert Skilbeck. Rupert is a barrister and the director of Redress, an organization focused on seeking redress for victims of torture. Before joining Redress, he was director of litigation at Open Society Justice Initiative and has worked with international and hybrid criminal tribunals in Cambodia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, and Sierra Leone. Enjoy the episode. Welcome back to Libya Matters. Marwa is off today, but we continue. I'm thinking about this episode, especially in the context of the anniversary today. So the 29th of June, which is when we're recording this episode, is actually the anniversary of the Abu Salim prison massacre, which is a horrible mark in Libya's past. And one of the things that still motivates people today, and actually was one of the triggers for the Libyan revolution in 2011, was the sense of injustice, people not knowing what happened in those events, and the families not having access to truth. And all those victims' rights are still very much alive in that incident and so many since and so many before. And that's what gets me thinking a bit more about our topic today. So today we're discussing a little bit of the issues that we have looked at before. So in the past episode with Carla um, Firstman, we looked at the question of accountability in general and explored the options there. With Wolfram Lasher, we looked at the question of sanctions specifically as an option for accountability. And then in episode 14 with Alex Whiting, we looked at international criminal law and how that could be utilized in Libya. And finally, we have a special with Pablo de Grief, where he looks at the question of achieving justice in what is called, or what is often called, a failed state. In this episode, we're going to look a little bit at the flip side of that. We're looking now at things that prevent, perhaps, the pursuit of accountability. And one of those is amnesties. And I think... The question of that and linking it to the anniversary I talked about at the start is is that kind of disjunctive. Sometimes amnesties are thought of for for political expediency or the like, but really what we what we care about when we talk about accountability is the rights of victims, and that tension is what I really want to be exploring today. Amnesties have been rather popular in Libya in the context of the transition we've seen since 2011. If I remember correctly, we've had at least four since 2011. Laws 35 and 38 of 2012. Law 29 of 2013 and Law 5 of 2015. My personal favorite is Law 38, which included a blanket amnesty for any actions necessitated by the February Revolution. In Libya, we are truly innovative when it comes to impunity. As far as I'm aware, this is the only forward-looking amnesty in history, which is quite something. To help me do all of that is someone I would like to call a friend, but who's also the director of Redress, an incredible organization that focuses on obtaining redress for victims of torture and one of Arab Jail's longest standing partners. Before that, he was litigation director at Open Society Justice Initiative, where he oversaw strategic litigation. And before all of that, he was at the Special Court for Sierra Leone and the State Court for Sarajevo. I can't continue listing all his experience, but I will add that Redress and LFJL worked together as Amici Curie before the ICC several times, meaning we were brought in as friends of the court who provide an, an input and specific elements on the Libya case, but without acting for or aligning with any side. Our most recent intervention was last year on the latest appeal from Saif Gaddafi's legal team. I will not spill the beans now, but I'm sure it'll come up in my conversation with him. So welcome to Libya Matters, Rupert Skilbeck. I'm so excited to have you here. Hi, Alham. Thank you for having me. I'm just really excited to have you here because it's, I know that you and I have had several of these conversations um, en route and endlessly in the context of the Safe case. But before we get into all of that, 
I think it would help for us to get some definitions right or some terminology clear. When we talk about an amnesty, what do we really mean? And what is, is there a difference between that and a pardon or any other mechanism of um, forgiving, if you like? Well, yes, it comes up in lots of different ways. Um, I mean, the, the critical difference is perhaps, and it's often confused with a pardon. And a pardon does sort of presume that someone has been found guilty in a criminal court and is then pardoned afterwards. And, and pardons do have a, a place in, in the criminal justice system and clemency. And normally pardons and clemency are, are an executive decision. I mean, the, the old fashioned historical version is a royal pardon, which still exists in some countries in the world. Uh, and that has been used. And sometimes human rights lawyers use it positively. So for example, um, in death penalty cases, particularly in the Caribbean and across Africa, the operation of executive clemency to stop someone being uh, killed is very important. And, and human rights lawyers litigated that to make sure that that clemency could be um, reviewed by a judge. So sometimes there is a, a proper place for it uh, to, to play, but it can also be very misused. So there's lots of examples of pardons being misused. Um, and amnesty is a little bit different in that that really presumes that no one will be prosecuted. So you don't go through the truth finding process. You don't go through the process of attributing responsibility and saying who did what. Um, everyone gets a get out of jail free card before any other process has taken place. So that there's a, a critical difference between those two. But then you also have other methods like statutes of limitations and so, or, or presumptions against prosecution. And so uh, some countries will uh, say that uh, either you have to start a prosecution within a period of time or the prosecution has to be completed within a period of time. And that may include all the appeals and things. So for example, Italy has that where if you haven't completed all the appeals within 10 years, then um, your criminal responsibility is wiped away. And, and that's been very useful for Silvio Berlusconi over the years. Um, and here in the United Kingdom, they're about to, currently before Parliament is a new law that will uh, insist that there is a presumption that British soldiers will not be prosecuted uh, and a triple lock to prevent them being prosecuted for uh, overseas operations. So uh, that presumption operates very similarly to an amnesty. There is a, a vague possibility of them being prosecuted, but it's incredibly unlikely given this triple lock that's being introduced. So all, all those different methods are there and they all result in someone not being held accountable. But some of them allow for no role for victims and no truth telling. Uh, and some have a little bit of that. So there is a bit of a there are key distinctions. And yes, it's important to know exactly which we're dealing with. Before we get into it, and I know this has nothing to do with the Libya context, but for the lawyer geeks like me who will be listening to this, what is the triple lock in the UK case? Because I think that's so fascinating. Well, so there is a uh, presumption of no prosecution where more than five years have passed and the uh, offence was committed by a British soldier on an overseas operation. Uh, and that includes a presumption against prosecuting genocide, against prosecuting crimes against humanity and against prosecuting torture. Um, now, that we would say breaches international law where there is a presumption that you must prosecute because they're all offences that, that shock the conscience of humanity. And therefore, over the last 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, the British government has been promoting the duty to prosecute those rather than the duty not to prosecute those. Um, and then the second part of it is that any such case would then have to get the permission of the Attorney General. And then the third lock, it's slightly unclear which the locks are, but I think the third one is that uh, no one is allowed to bring a legal claim against the Ministry of Defence against the government when six years have passed. So it's all designed to essentially limit or, or eliminate entirely any legal claims against the government, not against individual soldiers necessarily, but against uh, uh, ministers and politicians and, and their advisers 
um, once six years has passed and to make it almost impossible to prosecute them as well. Well, this frames it very awkwardly for us to then discuss international norms when we talk about countries like Libya. But... Mm, well, well, no, we should compare the Libyan law with the British law and, and see where the similarities lie. And, and other countries such as Argentina that did have such amnesties for things that took place and then have overturned them because they realised they were unlawful. So yeah, it, it's, it's, it's curious. And, and there is a big thing to be said about amnesties is that in Europe, Europe is very bad when it comes to amnesties. So that the French granted amnesties for everything that took place in Algeria, the Evian Peace Accords, um, essentially gave amnesties. No French troops were prosecuted for what took place in Algeria. There were uh, uh, appalling atrocities um, by the, the armed insurrection, but the French committed atrocities as well. No prosecutions for those. Um, Spain, as you'll know, is a full amnesty for what happened under Franco, and all attempts to bring any legal claims have been spurned by the Spanish government and by the European Court of Human Rights and by others, so full amnesties for that. And to some extent, the Northern Ireland peace agreement does introduce an element of amnesties in that um, most terrorists convicted of quite serious offences were released after very short periods of time. Now, of course, that goes back to my earlier point. That's more of a pardon than an amnesty because they were convicted. Uh, there was some truth-telling and accountability process for their victims, but then they were released after only a very short period of time. But others uh, were not pursued uh, and those who were on the run uh, were never prosecuted and will never be prosecuted. So we've had uh, amnesties for European um, conflicts, uh, however you might describe them legally. Um, but Europe is very bad at this and then goes around the world telling everyone else they can't have amnesty. So there is a there is a, a political conflict going on between North and South under this issue. That's, no, that's very true. It's actually a framing that I'm sure is very familiar to a lot of those who'll be listening to us about this, you know, this contradiction in what is said and what is done by some of the if you like, international community when it comes of issues of, of justice. And I know that our listeners will pick up on that discrepancy as we continue to explore what we are calling for in Libya, that, you know, why are we why are we pushing this set of ideals in Libya when actually those who are requesting it aren't doing it? But I'll I'll pause that debate and maybe we'll have that in a different episode because that is existential. <laughs> existential. You, you may want a political scientist for that one to really get out the, the juicy bits of it. Yeah, I think it's one of those that you sort of, you think you want to have the conversation until you then have it. And then it's so just soul destroyingly depressing that you wish you hadn't had the conversation and just worked in the ideal world. So let's stick in this for now, some, somewhat the ideal world. I remember at law school, you know, in my transitional justice module, it was always this, the question of amnesties was always presented as, well, you need a, a mix of redress and amnesties to get a transition right. It's naive to think that you can just do it with just um, prosecutions or with accountability. You have to have that. And and that that's the, you know, that's the solution. And you look at all the precedents and, you know, obviously they always drag out South Africa, et cetera. Um, but I'm not sure that's borne out by history. I, I think a lot of the times you'll find that the balance, the more the balance leans towards an amnesty-based model versus an accountability-based model, the more likely you're not dealing with the grievances and they will somehow reappear. And I always go back to South Africa as well for the same for that you know the same example for to make that point in the sense that a lot of the grievances were not addressed through the truth and reconciliation process, and as a result, we're seeing a lot of injustices reoccurring now that could have been dealt with had you know some of the grievances of victims been dealt with and so maybe I guess what I'd like to um, explore a little bit now is this you know is how do you reconcile the concept that okay pragmatically practically you need an element of um, you know amnesty in a process how do you reconcile that with victims' rights which are fundamental and they're you know the rights to justice to truth and to reparation I mean I think there is an element of that. In many conflicts, 
that are long and heavily involved, it is probably impossible to prosecute everyone who may have committed an offence. But most systems have attempted to do that in some way. Um, most systems essentially will have a process by which the most senior commanders or, or uh, military or political commanders are dealt with, and then a secondary mechanism that dealt, deals with what help happened elsewhere. So, I mean, the obvious one is the, the German cases, where everyone knows about the Nuremberg trial, which had 20-odd defendants before it, who were the very senior ones. But then there are all these second-level trials that took place uh, all around Germany under the occupied period for the next 10 years or so. Uh, I used to know the figures, but I think it's about 10,000 people were prosecuted in the course of those trials. And as we know, Germany is still prosecuting people, certainly for, for uh, concentration camp cases. So a lot of people were held accountable. The stories came out and were proved to a courtroom standard. That's what's important. Um, and then you get examples such as Rwanda, where you have the international tribunal that dealt with give or take 100 people. But then the Gachacha trials at a, a local level dealt with hundreds of thousands of other people and had a form of truth-telling where victims were able to say what happened and there was a form of accountability. Um, the Special Court for the Sierra Leone, again, prosecuted only nine or 10 people. But then there was a truth commission that essentially was there to deal with the lower level uh, perpetrators. Now, that partially works. There was an element of truth-telling. People were able to say what happened, and there were findings of fact. Um, but a lot of people got away with murder, literally, and people are very resentful of that. Um, I worked as well at the, uh, the Khmer Rouge Tribunal in Cambodia, uh, and that was perhaps one of the, the worst examples, because the decision was made there to only prosecute five people. And there have been attempts to prosecute a few more. I mean, essentially four old men and one old woman, most of whom, the majority of whom died before the process was complete. And any attempts to prosecute any further down the command chain have been vigorously resisted uh, by the court some 15 years later. They're still trying to do it. And in that one, there was no secondary process. There was no truth commission. There were no national trials. And one of the things I did there, I used to uh, run the defence right at the very beginning of it was we went out into the countryside and did outreach events where we would talk to ordinary people in Cambodia. And uh, one of the most uh, powerful images I have from doing one of those uh, up in the north of, of Cambodia was a whole group. It was me. I was there. The prosecutor was there. There was a judge there. We were explaining the process of the court. Uh, we explained how we were going to be dealing with the most serious offenders. And then uh, a woman stood up and said, um, that man standing over there killed my husband are you going to prosecute him? And we had to say, no, we're not going to prosecute him. We're only going to prosecute these five old men because they're the ones who represent uh, the, the criminality of what happened. And it wasn't convincing. We weren't convinced. And she certainly wasn't convinced. And that's the difficulty you have. If you have a system that only deals with the very top, it's very difficult. The truth doesn't come out if you do that. And there's no process for the victims to, to say what happened and for that catharsis to take place. So yes, there's lots of different examples of it through recent history and further afield history where there has been um, uh, accountability, but the ones where there's only very a thin layer of accountability don't work. You need a thicker layer of accountability. It may not manage to cover everyone, uh, but that's the that's what you're trying to do. The, the final example I give, which is probably the thickest layer of accountability, is Bosnia-Herzegovina, where you've got the, again, the Yugoslav tribunal was set up, 150 people tried, not just for Bosnia, for all the other elements of former Yugoslavia as well. But once the ICTY closed down, there were still 13,000 outstanding criminal complaints for war crimes that took place in Bosnia through the course of the war. And the decision of the government of Bosnia Herzegovina was, we're going to prosecute all of them. And so they are slowly working their way through 
all 13,000 criminal complaints. And that would be perhaps the thickest version of criminal accountability where there are no amnesties and everyone is eventually prosecuted even if it takes them 25 or 30 years. And is there any line that can be drawn between those various models and then the success of the transition afterwards? Or is that too academic a question? Well, I mean, I think that's where the transitional justice experts will come in. But certainly... um, Uh, and people can look at it and then analyze it from a very specific perspective, but certainly from a sort of anecdotal perspective coming at it as a lawyer rather than a political scientist. um, You just see more uh, engagement with the the, the people concerned, less of that uh, awful lack of justice that you get where the person who abused or killed your family still lives in the same village. Um, That's going to be a problematic response. And I think just, you know, as we're in the realm of anecdote, I remember when we were looking at um, the conflict when it first started in Libya in 2011, and we were out documenting quite heavily um, at the time because there was, you know, the, a crucial 11-day period um, in Benghazi where there was heavy targeting of civilians, and that's sort of what the ICE, the International Criminal Court was basing its initial arrest warrants around. So we were doing quite a lot of documentation there to support the court's work, but uh, also for our own records. One of the questions we had um, for victims in every statement we took is. Um, one one of the questions we had as out of jail and with with any victim we interviewed was the question of you know why are you sharing this information or why are you giving us this witness statement more for us to understand kind of the motivation and and another question was always you know would you be um, it's more to kind of test whether people were looking for um, prosecutions or whether looking for you know um, compensation or reparations of some kind and and you know we we took about four hundred statements of that period and. I really am struggling to think of a single one who said they wanted anything other than prosecution. And I think for me, when I when I think about that period, and, and really every time we've dealt with victims since, there's a real sense that um, you know justice is about is about knowing who not only knowing who's done it, but also that they're held accountable for that action. And then I look at the transitional justice law that was passed in Libya in 2012, which received a lot of praise, and it's quite strong in many, many ways, Um, but it very much is lacking on any prosecutions. It focuses on truth commissions, it focuses on reparations, um, but it doesn't really address the question of prosecutions. And that disconnect has always been what's really uncomfortable for me with the conversation, at least around, around Libya. Um, and then we have, you know, we, then we look at some of the amnesties that were passed, which were so general, so, so general, uh, including law 38 that I mentioned at the start, which, you know, has the wording that any act that was necessitated by the February 17th revolution is deemed forgiven effectively an amnesty applies to it. Um, and you know, obviously that's a blanket amnesty in, in kind of the terminology we use as lawyers. And it's always, it, it also appears to be forward looking because it doesn't reflect, it's not drafted in the past tense. It's, draft, it's drafted as an ongoing amnesty because it was passed very much in the middle of the conflict. And it's also obviously applicable to only one side because it only applies to um, those necessi- necessitated for the success of the February revolution, not to defend against it, for example. And so it, it's, it's biased in so many levels. It's in, you know, um, one serving one side it's also problematic because it doesn't carve out um war crimes or crimes against humanity which you'd hope an amnesty would when we pushed the authorities at the time they the response was well of course those aren't covered by it because we know that those aren't allowed under international law to be covered by an amnesty but it's not said in it's not stated clearly in that law and and who knows how a, a domestic court would have applied it or what they would have done with international elements 
And so I, I say all this just to frame the kind of, I guess, two things, the disconnection between what victims were asking for and what the legislature passed at the time, but then also clearly that the the kind of tool of an amnesty, which you'd hope is about transition and to kind of facilitate um, a peace, was not really doing that because it was already deeming one side to be the victor and therefore worthy of forgiveness and the other side not. Um, and so... I guess that brings me to the question of, you know, the status of amnesties at international law, because we know that they're acceptable and they're used, but we also should know that they're not acceptable or used in certain contexts, right? Exactly. So, I mean, they're not acceptable in international law. And so that means that an international tribunal will not recognize an amnesty. And they, the easy example of that, a very good example of that is in the Lomé Peace Accord, which was one of the attempts to stop the Sierra Leone war. And um, the the UN was a broker in that amnesty, in that uh, peace talks and, and the parties tried to give themselves amnesties. And the UN basically looked at it and the legal advisor who was there said, we can't sign this, we can't be part of this process. And so wrote in, save for offences against international uh, criminal law. And I think they said, and crimes against humanity, genocide, well, there was no genocide charged, etc. And so uh, that it was very, and then it ended up being litigated before the special court for Sierra Leone. And the special court decided we're an international tribunal, we cannot recognise that kind of amnesty. It's a bit more complicated at a national tribunal because, as we discussed right at the beginning, uh, some national systems do have forms of amnesty in one way or another, but essentially they will not be uh, uh, permitted at an international level. So when the country then gets reviewed at an international level, it's going to be found to be unlawful against international law. So you do have this rather weird uh, dichotomy where people think it's lawful under national law, because to some extent it is, but then the international environment is always going to say you can't do it particularly these very serious international crimes. Possibly you can for national crimes and for lower level things, but when you're talking about crimes against humanity, it can't be done. And maybe that's a good time for us to reflect on the last time we kind of worked together on this. And we obviously looked at the question of amnesties in a lot of details, part of our intervention in the safe case early, uh, well, last year. Um, but maybe before we kind of get into the meat of that question, um, and I think it's a question we asked a lot by people, you know, and, and, and the question is, why did you even get involved in that case in the first place? It's such a theoretical case. SAFE is never going to end up in The Hague. Is that the best use of your resources? And, and the amount of times I have that question. Um, and so maybe we can answer uh, for each of our organizations why we thought it was worthwhile to engage on that specific um, appeal in front of the SAFE case. Well, it's sorry, a pretty important case. principle. And I mean, yeah, the International Criminal Court is the only international criminal court. It's the one that sets the standard. And, and because this case was the first time that the court has looked at amnesties, it was really important that they did it properly. And so I've already mentioned that the um, Special Court for Sierra Leone looked at amnesties. Uh, the Cambodia Tribunal looked at them as well. Um, curiously, there it was very complicated because you both had an amnesty law that was passed and you had a royal pardon because uh, King Sihanouk pardoned some of the accused in 1980, I think. And so the court uh, in Cambodia had to look in, in real detail at these points when they were argued very, very heavily. And the Cambodian one is essentially a national tribunal with, with some foreign judges in it. But the Cambodian court said, no, you can't have an amnesty, you can't have a royal pardon, and we're going to go ahead and prosecute you because it's genocide and because it's crimes against humanity. So you have these quite good decisions from the Cambodia court, from the Sierra Leone court. And then you also had a lot of decisions from Latin America, where Argentina and other countries had tried to introduce amnesties and the Inter-American Court of Human Rights had said that they weren't permissible. But the International Criminal Court had never dealt with this question. And so what was really important, this is the, the global 
war crimes tribunal, as it were, got the law right. And so what we wanted to make sure was that the court was fully aware of the issues that were relevant, not just to Libya, but to other countries that are under its consideration and other countries that might come in the future. And so um, obviously in a courtroom process that strictly speaking the judges in an uh, uh, in a adversarial process are only considering what the prosecution say and what the defense say and the victims in the international criminal court process they don't necessarily consider the broader implications of what their decision may be about and so the role for us as amicus curiae friend of the court was really to come in and uh, tell the court what those implications were and encourage them to look at the bigger picture to make sure that their judgment didn't undermine where we've gone in international law Some of you, or maybe even one of you, is wondering, how can I make a difference or push things forward or achieve accountability? Well, it's really quite easy. Just two clicks away. Go to libyanjustice.org and click on donate to make a one-off donation or to give regularly. There really is no such thing as too little or too much. Your support is crucial to achieving justice in Libya. Thank you very much. But for now, enjoy the episode. And before we get into the, the sort of the details of what happened in that hearing, Maybe I'll just go, we can take a step back and just explain what the actual question before the court was, because we know that, um, for those you know, who haven't followed the case so closely, one of the first three arrest warrants that were issued uh, by the International Criminal Court was for Saif Gaddafi, again, for the events that happened in those 11 days in Benghazi that I was referring to. Um, and he, the admissibility of his case, which is basically the question of whether the court has jurisdiction over his case, i.e. can the court prosecute his case, has been brought up a couple of times by at one point, the Libyan state who wanted to take over the proceedings and said, you know, actually, the, we're in a different point right now. And the court doesn't have jurisdiction anymore and we want to take over. And at that point, Saif's defense said, actually, we don't think that the Libyan state can give us a fair trial or that they will, you know, treat um, Saif with, um, uh, in the appropriate way and give him all his rights. And therefore, the safe side of the or the safe defense was arguing that it should remain with the court. Um, and the court found in that instance that they continue to have jurisdiction. Uh, several years later, and crucially, an amnesty later that was applied to Saif uh, for the for the crimes in which he was accused. Um, Saif's uh, defense team came forward and said, "Well, actually, we've already been uh, had a we've already had a process in Libya, and there was an amnesty, and so that decision is final. And the court can't look at things that are final if they've been conducted in in the appropriate way." and Therefore, we don't think the court has any, any longer has jurisdiction over this case. And so that was, it was quite interesting. And that obviously came up and we can maybe talk about um, the, 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 just how, how interesting it was when the judge picked up on the point that the safe team changed sides on, on what they thought of the court's jurisdiction. Um, but one of the reasons we got involved, as you mentioned, is because the, the reliance of the safe team on the question of the amnesty being granted, making the the due process in Libya final, because once you've got an amnesty, that's it. Those crimes no longer exist, if you like, and the process is over. And so that was the argument. Um, and our position was, well, that's really, you know, a, from an international law perspective, it's everything you said, Rupert, which is this is really, really problematic because it's accepting amnesties. And we need this court to look at that um, just for the sake of, you know, jurisprudence that's being developed. Um, the second point from and from an LFJL perspective was this is really problematic for the Libyan um public and the victims especially who um, have not been able to really ascertain what happened in those days because the process in Libya was fundamentally flawed in terms of um, from in terms of both the, the side of the victims and the side of um, Saif as a defendant he didn't get his chance to put forward his case or to you know any two process to be, take place 
But also the fact that now we won't hear what happened at the ICC was also problematic from the victim's perspective. So I think we came to it with a lot of the same reasons because of the kind of international law precedent, but also with LFJL, the added element of saying, well, this is a really rubbish outcome for the victims on both levels because the, the, the domestic process was such a sham. And now we've got an international process that might accept this sham by saying an amnesty works to make a decision final is, is really, really problematic. And although we never think that practically it's very unlikely that he's going to end up in the dock anywhere, frankly, um, anytime soon, it was important for us to make the point on behalf of sort of Libyans who've suffered that this is not a, not an acceptable outcome on both levels. Um, but then we come to actually what happened at the court and the fact that they seem to have sort of tiptoed around the question of the amnesty. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult for courts because ultimately they have to decide the question that is in front of them. And while they may be tend and ultimately they were able to decide uh, the case based on a question of Libyan law to, to pretty much. And so they judges don't necessarily like uh, answering questions that don't have to be answered because their view often is that it'd be better to decide those where the facts absolutely require it. And so you make sure you make the right decision. The risk is if they sort of just give a general opinion, um, it may not have been tested properly by the parties. It may not have been uh, appropriate to do it. So you end up with a, with not such a good decision. And so they're a little bit cautious to do that. And it looks like that's what happened here. Having said that, uh, one of the judges gave a dissenting opinion where, or no, not dissenting opinion, a concurring opinion, where she gave a much more detailed uh, view on the amnesty question, essentially setting out what the law is. And so that's helpful because what you really have is a nice, succinct summary of what the international law against amnesties is in a judgment of the uh, International Criminal Court. So it's very useful law to have out there. So for that, the perspective of the international criminal lawyer, you've got a nice judgment that does clarify this. Um, for the people of Libya who wanted to have perhaps a sense of justice, then they may be less excited by that. Um, but that is to some extent because it's an, an appellate legal point. Um, and as and when, uh, I mean, Elham, as you say, it's unlikely that there will be a trial. But people have said that in many other jurisdictions. And 20 years later, there are trials. Cambodia took 35 years, but there were trials. And so that process may yet happen. And the judgment will have its implication then because essentially the trials will go ahead. And so I think it does have implications both for developing the law, but also for making sure there is accountability for what happened in Libya. Yeah, and I think it, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's interesting that the that the judge who gave the separate opinion was the South American judge, right? So she has possibly, a, I don't know, a, a different perspective, I guess, on amnesties than the European and, and, and African judges that were sitting on the panel. Very much. I mean, I think you've, you've seen this, as we briefly discussed at the beginning, there have been amnesty processes in Argentina, in Chile, in Brazil, and they've taken many years to dismantle. Um, and the, the higher courts have started that process, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, they've both completed that process. And now trials go ahead. And and it's an extraordinary process. Uh, it also is very relevant because people often say, oh, well, you can't do trials so long after the events. There have been well, I'm a bit late on my figures, but certainly it used to be 600 convictions in Argentina for acts of torture and other abuses that took place in the 1970s and the early 1980s. Uh, and those have all been very fair trials with proper adjudication, etc. Uh, and those have been able to go ahead. So I think you're quite right. Judges who come from that Latin American background can see how uh, accountability can work even many years after the event. And it's perfectly possible to do that. And they see how amnesties prevented that taking place for such a long time. And as part of the process of moving on, 
uh, as a modern democratic state, it's essential that that accountability has taken place. And just to sort of step away from the kind of law element of the, our experience at the court, because that, you know, I'm not trained as a barrister, I'm a solicitor. So that was really my first time in that setting, other than to be in the audience. Um, and and, of, and obviously the court, especially, the, I mean, the ICC here is is so mysterious to so many people and, it, and it's so peculiar in, in, in so many ways. So maybe we can just, I don't know, I'll reflect a little bit about the physical space, the process itself, just I think to give, um, maybe to give our listeners a little bit of insight as to how that set up is, because I found it fascinating that, you know, you come in and there's us sitting with our team as the, as the Amici or the, you know, the friends of the court. There was the other friends of the court who were speaking to the need to have amnesties um, to get to get through this process and get through the transition and how, you know, safe is a crucial part of the transition and we need him to be active politically. That was their kind of position. But then you've got all another party that um, we, we haven't mentioned so far, which is the Libyan state there representing it, its position on whether um, the court should have jurisdiction or not, because presumably they would have it if they if the court doesn't. Then you have the defense team and you have the prosecution and you have the victim. So there's quite a lot of kind of parties which you wouldn't see in, in your normal court on, on television. Um, add to that, like the kind of the sort of the the kind of theater of it. And I, you know, and I'm quite short. And so <laughs> to find robes from the court that could fit me was was one of the biggest tasks we had. Although I was quite lucky that the robes I had were full of sweets. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> Because whoever someone bored, had left them behind, someone had left them behind, and clearly they they don't clean them between uh, use or whatever, which which is interesting for the current Corona days. Um, but I think it, I think some of that theater was something we were commenting on when we were there, and and how really for a court that's meant to be about victims and to try and give them access, it doesn't really seem to be a very welcoming physical setup to engage with. Yeah, I mean, there's quite a lot written by legal theorists about the theater of court, and. Uh, to some extent, it's a very interesting process because it, it, accountability does involve a very public process. Uh, but of course, it's got to be done fairly. So it's not just a show trial. You could have a show trial where you have the theatre of it. Um, but also, it's a process of making sure people can see what's happening, people can hear what's happening, people can engage where they need to engage. I mean, international tribunals are, are difficult bodies. There's no two ways about it. And of course, the preference under the Rome statute system is that trials take place in the country where the crimes took place in the national language or languages where there's more than one, using local actors who know what's going on. And only when that can't be done, do you go to the international arena. Um, but particularly in the early stages, and the International Criminal Court is still, to be honest, in the early stages, even it's been going for 20 years, it's still refining some of these legal questions that come up. Um, and I've certainly been involved in the setup phase of, of three international tribunals, and the same thing happens in all of them. You have these quite technical legal preliminary arguments about the the authenticity of the tribunal, whether it has the right to do what it's doing. And there is a risk. It feels terribly distant from the people concerned. And, you know, there's going to be foreign judges. There's going to be interpretation. No one's going to quite know what the procedure is. It's always a little bit haphazard to begin with until people get used to the way it operates. And it does mean that it, it seems a very, very long way from, from what people are used to, which is why uh, sometimes truth commissions, which are much more immediate, 
uh, much more raw in many ways, people just say what happened, uh, can have more of an impact when it comes to that accountability process. But once a decision has been made, yes, you've, you've, this, that's the way international tribunals work. And, and we often try as best we can to simplify them, to make them more immediate, more, more relevant, more personal. But it's not always easy to do. And I remember sitting there, you know, when we were sitting and we, we were looking at how grand it is. And it is a very intimidating room, which I guess is obviously part of the psychology of a, of a courtroom but it, it did I think it does shift the balance towards the more seasoned speakers it's a real problem for witnesses yeah so I mean the difficulty is the sheer number of people you have to have involved when you're doing it in interpretation in particular and that you have interpretation booths and of course th there's a certain diplomatic element to these international tribunals states have the right to speak I mean that's not normal well you do in extradition cases a country will be represented in a court hearing so there's some precedent for it and the international court of justice is a semi-diplomatic process in some ways legal diplomacy if you will um, so it, it is very um, uh, distant in that way and I do feel sorry for witnesses who have to give evidence because it, it's so alien to what they may have experienced and for many of them, they may have to fly to The Hague, they may have to give evidence. Now, this was the appeal court. And so, of course, it is more formal, more technical, more legal. And the trial chamber would be more um, down to earth, if I can use that phrase, because they're used to hearing witnesses and trying to make them feel at home. Although the, the, the court has created this rather large double cube uh, concept, which is a bit weird. Having said that, the Cambodia court, for some bizarre reason, they decided to set up a court in a theatre, literally, oh, wow. um, which, which was an exact replica of the theatre where they had conducted the 1979 show trial, which was a communist show trial uh, against uh, um, Yang Sari and others uh, uh, for, for genocide. Um, and so they built an exact replica of that theatre, curious. And then the, the stage was then glassed in for security reasons, because there are security risks at these courts as well. And so you have this rather peculiar feeling of being inside a goldfish bowl oh, while wow. supposedly <laughs> conducting a trial. And it also means you can close the curtains in a rather dramatic fashion uh, as they do at the International Criminal Court, where there's things that are taking place that people uh, shouldn't be uh, being watching. I mean, it is interesting having seen in lockdown how the new way of operating is. I wonder if actually these tribunals uh, would be much better accessed through really efficient video links. And I suspect they'll be looking at that a little bit more because as people get used to it, the technology is there, the examples are there. Because to be honest, having someone back in their own country in a secure place that, that's safe, etc., giving evidence without having to fly to The Hague and go to this weird process, I think you're going to get better justice than perhaps forcing them to go through that process. And you made the point um, about witnesses speaking and how, how difficult it is if the state is there. But actually... You know, in most instances, those who come in as friends of the court or, or you know, as amicus are are also civil society actors or people who might be targeted by the state or or there's a real likelihood of reprisal. And so I don't I think even in these technical questions, um, there is there's questions there about, you know, the, the safety of those participating in, in that capacity as well. And, you know, I mean, we will move on from this conversation, but just one thing that I thought was quite um funny at the time was, uh, you know, a few times we try to be civil in these situations. And, you know, although you're kind of sitting on opposite sides within the courtroom, you're then waiting in the same area beforehand. And, and you know, they gave us the same kind of um, coffee facilities that we shared, etc. whilst we were waiting, which was fine because it was, you know, it was relatively amicable between us. But if you think about it in a real situation to put um, the defense plus the kind of third party, you know, neutral activists in the same place is just seemed to me so disconnected from what that could mean 
in a different setting if it wasn't quite as civilized as it seemed to be in our in our process i mean that is ultimately the way the courts work and to some extent where you have uh independent lawyers representing your views this whole idea of an independent advocate rather than you know you don't have the actual people making the arguments you have their lawyers making their arguments and the whole concept of professionalism between lawyers means that you maintain courtesy because the reality is if you don't it just doesn't work uh, and so uh, it has to be said where you're dealing with more well i mean in ordinary courts in ordinary countries people are dealing with profoundly emotional issues the family courts are perhaps the most emotional where the lawyers have to really have that sense of, of professionalism to make it work. But in international criminal law, that works as well. And quite often it's in, um, you, you end up knowing the prosecution quite well. The defence and the prosecution and the victim's lawyers all know each other socially because they may have all gone to Phnom Penh for three or years or 15 years, however long they've been there. And so, yes, that, that sense of professional responsibility and professionalism is pretty unusual for those who haven't seen it before. Uh, and um, you have to sometimes be careful doing it too overtly in front of witnesses or clients because they may not understand that well hang on why are you speaking to him he's on the other side well because you know we have to work professionally with each other so it's a curious process and it's always interesting hearing the views of people who are new to a court whether they're junior lawyers who've never seen it before or witnesses or, or others visiting the court they're often really surprised by it but it is the nature of the profession to some extent maybe my last anecdote on this is i remember when we were you know, discussing this question and earlier on and when we were chatting, I explained how SAFE's defense team's position has changed from being one advocating for the criminal court to have jurisdiction to now wanting to remove the jurisdiction. The Libyan state's position also flipped. So initially they were the ones who brought um, the initial request to, to you know, uh, the, the initial um, challenge to the admissibility of the court by saying, well, actually, we want to bring this um, this case on and and it was found that the court still had jurisdiction now their position in in the second round that we were a part of was that they wanted the court to have jurisdiction because they felt that if the court didn't then he would be getting away with the crimes um, that they had tried to prosecute him for because of the amnesty applied by a, the dif a different um, legislature um, and I think I remember at that point, I was discussing it with a few people, you know, there and I was saying, well, actually, we're the only party here whose position hasn't, <laughs> hasn't yeah. changed. We've been maintained throughout that the um, that the admissibility stayed with the court initially because we thought the trial in the country was not fair and was problematic and therefore the court should provide a fairer trial. And in the second instance, it was because of the question of the misuse of this amnesty law um, and a misunderstanding of Libyan law. And so it was a, it was an odd mo moment where... Um, you know, the legal representative of the state was saying, oh, you know, we're, we're on the same side finally. And I'm like, well, we didn't change sides. Yeah, well, these are long processes, huh? I mean, um, that's the other big critique of international criminal law, that, that it takes a long time. And so things do change and and defence positions change, the facts change, things change. But yes, it was uh, it was curious that the, the, that the uh, civil society groups were the ones who have maintained a pretty solid position all the way through. Yes, it's um, you know, not to pat ourselves on the back, but it's... Uh, try, <laughs> um, and, try and keep it consistent. That's very good if you can. Consistent is good. Um, so just trying to look ahead now, we've, you know, we've, we've, I think we've reflected a bit on kind of the history of amnesties and how they've been used or abused in the past and in the context of Libya, where they are so fluidly offered um, and discussed and always on the table as part of, of this transition that we're, we're really struggling to get through. Uh, we now know that there's a new round of talks um, that are due to start in the political process in, in Libya. Um, amnesties are already being discussed as necessary to achieve the transition. 
which is seems so difficult at a time when the crimes have also escalated in the country and you know just in the last few weeks we've we've um reports have come out on, on mass graves and the use of um landmines against returning internally displaced persons and so it seems like so so disconnected from what's happening on the ground that one of the very first things that are being discussed as part of getting people to the table is the question of well you know the only way you're going to get all these actors to the table is to on some level promise essentially impunity um and so maybe this is our chance to kind of set you know set the record straight on what is acceptable in that context and thinking going ahead that we have a situation that's still salvageable in Libya. You know, we're, we're still in a conflict and there's still opportunity to do this transition better or to try and think of a way to make it work better um, and to use amnesties in a restrained way and really focus on what the victims have been telling us consistently and what we know from history works in that kind of a spectrum, if you like, of, of accountability um, and maybe help influence some of the decision makers in that context and say, look, let's think about something that's reasonable, um, and bearing in mind that this process is led by the UN and um, this peace process will be led by the UN or at least, or at least facilitated by the UN that what is offered and what's not offered is is worth exploring a little bit more. I think that's absolutely right. And, and that has happened in other peace processes recently. It, in Colombia, they've been engaging with the question of amnesties and how that would work with some success and with some problems as well, of course. But I mean, it, it has to start from the the, the the beginning position has to be you can't have a blanket amnesty. So don't even pretend to offer that because it's not going to fly. So you can't just say everyone gets away with it. There's a get out of jail card for everyone. There's no justice whatsoever. Even if that's done on both sides, because all we've seen in Libya so far is blanket amnesties for one side. But let's say they're like, you know what, we're being even handed. We're giving an amnesty to everyone. Yeah, well, guess what? The people of Libya don't want that to happen. And uh, I'd be surprised if there's any situation where people have said, yes, I'm happy for everyone to get away with it. So that blanket approach doesn't work. Then you've got to get more sophisticated. And so you've got to come up with an approach that includes some mechanism for accountability. And accountability means uh, that truth-telling process. The truth has to come out. People have to be able to say what happened. Some judicial process has to be able to find who was responsible and make findings of fact so that they can do that. That's really important. And then the, I mean, it's always good to look at it from the question of reparations, which is that the broader term that is used to describe what it is that victims should be getting from any of these transitional justice processes. And so um, satisfaction is, uh, there's five of them, I always forget one, but satisfaction is one of them, which normally is that truth-telling process. You know, they they get a judgment of one way or another. It may be uh, partially a truth commission, it may be partially a trial, but there will be something there. There needs to be rehabilitation for the victims so that those who have had their lives ruined by the process uh, have their lives rebuilt as part of that men medically psychologically however it may be um there mean that one of the most important things that people want is non-repetition you mentioned right at the beginning alham everyone always says they want justice they don't want compensation I, I agree that's my experience we normally have to insist that yes no you do need compensation because guess what you're going to have to pay medical bills for the rest of your life so you need to ask for this and we'll help you do it but the other thing that really comes across is people don't want this to ever happen again to someone else and that that we always get as a profoundly strong element so that needs to be in there as part of this process as well uh, and then compensation needs to be there just to compensate people but that can often be the one of the more complicated ones to make happen but they do need to be able to rebuild their lives as best they can uh, but so 
the experts who need to come in and those who need to do these negotiations need to have those principles in mind and come up with a scheme that will allow there to be a measure of accountability now and perhaps a measure of accountability in the future. But it's pretty clear from all the previous examples that the uh, blanket amnesties, whether applied to one side or both sides, don't work because almost certainly people will come back later wanting to have another go at it. So it may work for a couple of years, but but it won't be the end of the story. So yes, there's lots of expertise out there. There are people who've engaged with this in Cambodia, in Uganda, in Colombia, in Sudan, in many different places. And that expertise can be brought to bear to make sure that something is constructed that moves us towards an accountability model. And so here, are we making the case for kind of some kind of conditional amnesties where, and we've seen this in some in some you know past examples where your ability to benefit from an amnesty is conditional on you participating proactively in a truth process. Yeah, I mean, the worst for, Forms of amnesties are one where ones where literally the people get away with it without any admission. And in the truth-telling context, that the famous example is always the South African one, where they had to admit the offence, um, and then that then only then were they eligible for anything else to happen. Uh, admitting offences is is a method, although it's not a particularly good one if it's not done openly. Um, in the Gambia at the moment, there's a very interesting uh, Truth Reconciliation and Reparations Commission, where there have been a, a astoundingly honest truth-telling processes. So the truth is really coming out. Out through that process with people admitting carrying out individual murders and things such as that, the command structure coming out. But the risk with admissions is that people don't really admit it, mm. or they even plead guilty without saying what happened. And you get that quite a lot in common law systems where people can just admit it, but they don't really admit it. So you need to avoid that. But some process where there is uh, contrition, there is uh, genuine admissions and truth-telling, literally what's very important for certain people where there have been disappearances is to say where the bodies of their loved ones are. And that's profoundly important for there to be a genuine process. So it can be, I'm not going to suggest a solution because I don't know enough about the details on the ground, but there are lots of people who can spend, you know, real focused time to help come up with a structure that would be appropriate where you balance some of these issues, but where accountability is still at the heart of it. And that's what has to be uh, clear that you can't skip that bit and try and do all the others instead. I really appreciate your humility in saying that you won't provide a solution not knowing the details because unfortunately you're not, you know, that that's very rare in the Libyan context. And the reason I, I, I say that is I remember very early on in 2011, 2012, as soon as, you know, as soon as Tripoli opened up uh, to the international community, there were like literally plane loads of experts being flown in from South Africa, um, who were there for three days effectively to help write laws or to, you know, give their experience. And it was such a frustrating time for us because we were like, we still don't know what's going on with this conflict. Uh, you know, we don't know what the particularities of these kinds of the violations that we're going to unravel or with the, you know, injustices that are going to come out to kind of export these models um, and, you know, people very heavily pushing them within the UN structure to say, you know, this is the South African model or this is the... Um, uh, Rwanda model, and we really strongly endorse this without really taking the time to understand the Libyan context, is for me a recipe for disaster. I mean, there's something to learn from past experiences, but whatever we think about in terms of this really intricate balance of accountability and um, reconciliation and reparations, and, you know, it's a, it's a, such a delicate formula to get right. And it, it's so, you know, even that for systems that are created bespoke, it still fails. And so, for us to think that we can just copy this. And if you look at the Libyan Transitional Justice Law, the Truth Commission is effectively a replica of the South African 
one without it really taking the context of Libya um, into account. And then there was an attempt of some kind of Gachasha model replacing it with the elders in Libya, you know, because of the kind of um, community-based justice kind of thing, which again, the structure doesn't quite exist in the same way in Libya, but it it's almost like a you know, a master student's thesis type approach to it of, oh, well, this is what something might look like for Libya in, in, instead of taking time to really build it up and speak to the to the victims. So I'm, 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 you know, I'm not, not necessarily asking you to comment on that, but I'm appreciating the fact that you are not professing um, a view on what this should look like. I mean, the, um, the cut and paste model of international justice is a real pain. And I've seen it countless times. And even worse is the parachute experts who drop in for a couple of days and then drop out again. And, and I've been to all sorts of processes in, in the international criminal law arena. There's a lot of training goes on. And I've seen people trying to train Bosnian lawyers to cross-examine like a Texan complete waste of time and no no vague understanding of how a different yeah, justice system and a different culture works and so i think that they're really unhelpful those those quick fix responses where you just come in and drop in another system but there are experts out there and in the un in particular who go in there you know they're there for years and they will get to know the people they will get to know the context they'll get to know the culture they'll get to know what's going to work and what isn't going to work and develop a bespoke solution based on the experiences that have gone before and as you say there have been countless other examples and there are real experts out there who dedicate that longer uh, time period to do this. So yeah, it, it's possible, but that that ghastly um, instant cut and paste role is sadly something that we've struggled with for many years. And what generally happens is it then has to be unpicked uh, 10 years later because it just doesn't work. And Bosnia is a great example of that, where they put in place lots of mechanisms in the criminal justice system were simply cut and paste from uh, completely foreign jurisdictions without even changing the word sometimes. And it just doesn't work. So that 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 method is needs to be desperately avoided. No, and I, I remember quite cynically someone um, saying to me in one of these meetings, oh, you know, you're, you're really eloquent and you're, you're so good at explaining things. If you play your cards right, there's really a career for you in this. <laughs> well, you want to fly around to random countries and drop in for two days? You can bring, do in, it. bring in my Olivian expertise, exactly. Um, but the fact that we can't sit down here today and, you know, design a process for Libya is one thing. But the fact that we, there are these guiding principles that we highlighted, which is exactly the no blanket amnesty that, you know, the, the importance of there being a judicial process that assists in the truth coming out and, and the key, key elements you gave of reparations. And, and I think it's important to break it down into what you said, you know, the satisfaction, the rehabilitation, the non-repetition, the compensation, because I think for a lot of people, reparations really just sounds like hush money. Um, and I think what we want to say is that actually that's absolutely not it. It's about, you know, so many elements that ensure that the damage is um, is healed to the extent possible. And I think the element of non-repetition is is probably the one that's most often forgotten in when we're when we're having the more casual conversation about about reparations. So that's a really helpful starting point for us to to work from. And I agree. Everyone thinks it's about uh, everyone thinks it's about compensation. And, and as you say, that's only one of the five. I think we've only covered four, though. Yeah. I always forget the fifth. And I can't profess to have ever known the fifth, so I, I won't. Um, but I, I'm sure if I remember it, we can add it to the to the episode notes for people to pick up on. Exactly. We'll make sure we. Do. Hi, my name is Jürgen Schur and I work with LFGL on accountability and justice. For this LFGL Explains, I'll speak about universal jurisdiction, which basically means that any state is allowed or even obliged to investigate and prosecute serious international crimes such as war crimes or torture, irrespective of where they were committed and regardless of the nationality of the perpetrators and of the victims. 
So in our case, it would be, for instance, police and prosecution authorities in Germany looking into torture committed in Libya by and against Libyan nationals. There is no evident connection to Germany in this case. The reason why third countries can or have to investigate these types of crimes is that they are so serious that they affect everyone. And so torture committed in Libya also matters to all other countries and all other countries globally have an interest and even an obligation to see to it that torture is being prosecuted. There are a lot of cases in which the exercise of universal jurisdiction led to the conviction of perpetrators of serious international crimes, most recently also in the context of crimes committed in Syria. Amnesty laws adopted in one country do not stop prosecutions in third countries on the basis of universal jurisdiction. In one case involving the prosecution in France of a senior Mauritanian police officer for torture committed in Mauritania, the French courts for example decided that an amnesty law adopted by Mauritania for crimes such as torture was contrary to international law. NGOs, lawyers and others play an important role in providing information to national law enforcement authorities in third countries, not only about the crimes committed but also about the movements and whereabouts of alleged perpetrators. For LFGL, universal jurisdiction will be an important potential avenue to hold perpetrators to account and to afford a measure of justice to victims. And we will be working with partners globally to put this principle into practice also in the context of Libya. So I feel I have like a good to-do list to to take away with me to my advocacy. Um, and so thank you very much for that. Very good. Which now brings me to this kind of quick round that we do at the end of each um, episode. Okay. That we like to call debunking the narrative. Um, although someone said it's dispelling the myth. So whatever we call it. We've done a few of those already about uh, cut and paste I know, justice. actually, yeah. We, we might be repeating some of them here, but I'm, I'm, I'm giving them in the quotes that I've heard, which have really grated me. Um, and so you can feel free to dis dismiss them as... Um, flippantly as you like. Um, what do you want my comment on these? Yes. Whether I agree with them? Well, hopefully you, hopefully you won't. <laughs> but okay. more, but more, you know, like a, a dismissing them if you like. But if, okay. if you agree, yeah. then please let me know. I'll let you know. Um, okay, so here's the first one that I always hear. We can work on rule of law and accountability after we have a peace. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, the problem is by then it's too late because there's no evidence. It's all been disappeared. It's all been destroyed and uh, no one's prepared to do it. So yeah, you might as well get on with it right at the beginning. You cannot have reconciliation without amnesties. You cannot have reconciliation without amnesties. Well, no, there's plenty of examples where you can have reconciliation. And everyone always thinks that the South African example, everyone got an amnesty. Hardly anyone got an amnesty. Mm. And they went ahead and prosecuted quite a few if they hadn't done things properly. So that, yeah, it's a big myth, that one. But you, as we say, it's got to be a, a bespoke solution uh, that makes sure what you can't have is reconciliation when there is complete amnesty, because that never works. You are good at this. Okay, the last one. Uh, it is Islamic to forgive. God will deal with them in the afterlife. Oh, I'm not going to profess any expertise <laughs> to approach it from a religious perspective. Uh, but yeah, certainly from a, a legal perspective, um, impunity doesn't work. The whole legal system is there to uh, set out the process for deciding who did what and, and assigning accountability. That big question of accountability, I'll give you one last anecdote. And it's not in this, uh, his, it's not in a, a war crimes context. It's in a context of human rights litigation. It was in the cases all about discrimina discrimination against Roma in Europe. And there was this big case called DH against the Czech Republic. And 10 years after the judgment, they went back and asked the, the claimants in the case, what was important to you about this case? 
And this woman, D.H. Denisa Holobova, her name is, but at the time she was anonymous, who lived in a very poor settlement in the eastern uh, part of, of uh, the Czech Republic, said, what was the most important thing for me was that 15 white judges in Strasbourg stood up and said, what happened to me was wrong. What happened to me was unlawful. What happened to me should never happen again. And that's what justice means and accountability means for victims of human rights violations all around the world. And that's what we need to remember. I love that anecdote, although I'm not sure I always want to revert to 15 white men. <laughs> meant to give it to me but i get the point that that tells you what authority is in the current (laughs) world as it is uh we're trying to change that as well but that's the topic for another podcast perhaps we have a very good one on that with asma khalifa who's who's a phenomenal libyan feminist that picks up on some of those themes so don't worry i'm I'm not asking you to 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 discuss that topic (laughs) as well but thank you so much i think one of the one of the myths that we did dispel in this episode is this idea that transitional justice is always framed from the perspective of the perpetrator. It's about them getting away with it. It's about them having their day in court and and really bringing the focus back to it. It should be, and we, we are certainly working towards it being from the perspective of the victim. And I think that's really important to take away from this. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying Libya Matters, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This will help us get discovered and to keep growing. To let us know what you think or to suggest any guests or topics for future episodes, please contact us on our Facebook page at Libya Matters or tweet us at Libya Matters Pod. Libya Matters is produced by Lawyers for Justice in Libya. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Libyan Justice. This season of Libya Matters was hosted by me, Ilham Saudi, Marwa Mohammed, and Mohammed Al Misiri. It is produced by Tarek Al Miri. The people who put season two of Libya Matters together are Finbar Anderson, Zaira Edwards, Mayad Al Makki, Mohammed Al Misiri. Elise Fletcher, Nada Kiswanson, Marwa Mohammed, Tim Molyneux, and me, Ilham Saudi. This episode of Libya Matters is made possible by our partnership with the International Center for Transitional Justice, ICTJ. (laughs) 